This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. He chewed tobacco. He pulled it open and he went, he spit out a wad into his platoon. I could hear it splash and I kind of went, ooh. He looked at me and he said, Bolden, I think you lost your mind. (laughs) You got hundreds of classmates who would give their IT to go to flight school and you want to be an infantry officer? And I said, yes, sir, Major McElroy, I do. He said, well, I think that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but if you want to do it, you can do it. So he said, come on back in and talk to me after the three-day walk. So we went out for the three-day war and he was absolutely right. I went through that and I, the next day I beat a path in the Major McElroy's office. And I take it all back, sir. <laughs> he, looked, he looked up at me and smiled. He said, Bolden, what you want? I said, well, Major <laughs> McElroy, I'm here to tell you, I want to keep my aviation option. He said, I'm glad to hear that. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. If you followed any news about the United States Space Program and NASA in the past 10 years, you'll no doubt recognize the name of my guest today. Major General Charles F. Bolden, or Charlie as he much prefers to be called, was the administrator or head of NASA from 2011 to 2020. With a resume reading, Marine Corps General four-time shuttle astronaut and NASA administrator, you might well say he's had a storied career, but he'd reject that description. Charlie was born in segregated South Carolina and grew up, as he'll tell us, in a middle-class black family in a stable community. So join me for the first of two episodes where my Hubble flight buddy, Charlie Bolden, shares his experiences as one of the first African-Americans to attend the Naval Academy at Annapolis and tells us how he ended up a pilot in the Marine Corps, despite hating flying in his youth, and how that eventually led to his career at NASA. Charlie Bolden, Major General Bolden, my, my pilot and commander and good friend, it is so great to see you. Good to be with you there, Dr. Sullivan. Happy to have you on the show. You have quite an elaborate online biography, so anyone who's Googled you even once will know a lot about you. But in a nutshell, it's a a storied career from a very humble background. Naval Academy, Marine Corps combat pilot, four shuttle flights, back to the Marine Corps, rising to the rank of Major General, and then thank heavens for all of us hopping over to NASA to be administrator through the entire Obama presidency. And I had the great privilege of being a small part of some bits of that career. But if you would, I'd like to start back, as I always do at the very beginning. Charlie Bolden Jr. was born in Columbia, South Carolina in 1946. Yep. Tell us about your family a bit and you as a very young child. And then, you know, growing up in the segregated South of South Carolina in the 60s. Well, Kathy, thanks very much, first of all, for the opportunity just to share the time with you and, uh, and really to talk a little bit about, about my background. And, and one of your first comments, let me correct it kind of. I don't, I don't come from a humble background. I, I am, uh, and some people will misunderstand this. And, and so let me try to explain it. I have incredible friends, we both do, 
who come from what I would consider to be really humble backgrounds. I mean, they were the first to go to school. You know, they, they really didn't know where the clothes. I came from a middle-class black family. My mom and dad were both college educated. Uh, Jackie and I both, both of us are privileged to have been born into uh, families that were a part of middle-class America, which is something that we seem to have lost touch with and we don't understand anymore how important it is. But, but my parents were middle-class working people. Jackie and I both decided we were not gonna teach because we watched them and we knew how hard they worked and how little money they made. That has not changed, but I still think that's the, that's the salt of the earth is those people who don't make enough money work way too hard and raise kids like me. So that now that that's out of the way. Well, so you've mentioned Jackie twice. And just to be oh, clear, yeah, the, the lady of my life, the great Mrs. Bolden. Yes. From what you've just said, tell us when you met her. It sounds like it was very early on. Mrs. Bolden and I, to the best of our knowledge, met when we were three. All right, then. And we actually we actually knew each other, not as, as three as best as three year olds can because my mom and dad and, and Jackie's father, Pete Walker, went to high school together at Booker T. Washington High School in Columbia, South Carolina. And at the time, Booker Washington was the only black high school in Columbia. Jackie's mother, on the other hand, being the, the daughter of a Baptist preacher, Jackie's mother went to Benedict School, which was a private church school in Columbia that carried on into Benedict College. So Jackie's mom, Adele and Pete Walker went to Benedict where he played football. And my mom and dad went to Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he played football. And she was the, the school queen and all that other kind of stuff. She was the scholar, he was the jock. <laughs> she went into Alpha Kappa Alpha, a very scholarly black sorority. My dad, like me, became an Omega Sci-Fi Q dog that although they're brilliant people, their reputation is not such. It's a little more of a drinking party. <laughs> a little bit more. So, so my dad and Pete Walker played football together in high school. And when they had kids, the Walkers had three girls and my mom and dad had two boys. And we tended to do things together because my mom and Jackie's mom, Adele, were members of an organization called Jack and Jill, uh, Jack and Jill of America. It was a black mother's organization around the country that came together to afford their kids an opportunity at social life that we would not get otherwise in the segregated South and sometimes even in what was called the integrated North. And so Jack and Jill got us to museums and art shows and concerts and the like when we couldn't do it on our own because they could get special permission to go to the museums at certain hours of the week or day or, or stuff like that. So that's how we came together at the age of three. Say a little bit more about that. I've never heard that part of the early story before. Those places wouldn't let African-Americans in, in the light of day. You had to go at night or when the white folk wouldn't be bothered that's, kind of thing. That's kind of the way it was. We wow. They picked times when either they were closed to the public or you know the traffic was going to be low enough that we wouldn't cause a disturbance. Like the theaters, Blacks didn't have, we did not have a theater in Columbia in my early childhood. So we were able to go to the downtown theaters on Saturday mornings for the matinees, but they opened, what they did was they closed the balcony to whites and opened the balcony to, to black kids. You mean the movie theaters? The movie theater. Yeah. So yeah. that's where I got to see Lash LaRue and Hopalong Cassidy and the, and the <laughs> Lone Ranger. But also my science fiction favorite was always Buck Rogers, where I would ah. watch walk out to his spacecraft, walk aboard, fly off to Mars and come back all in the same day. Time for lunch. <laughs> Time for lunch, you know, or whatever it was. So so that that's sort of my early childhood. So you went to a segregated, I mean, it was fully segregated, right? So you were fully segregated. Yeah. And we went to Jackie and I went to Bethlehem Center Community Center. It was a privately run community center in the middle of the black neighborhood, but they had a daycare center slash kindergarten. And so Jackie and I were both, since our parents were teachers, Jackie and I were both enrolled in Bethlehem Center. And so we got to know each other there. And I can remember she doesn't she doesn't agree with me, but uh, I fell in love with her very early on. She was just breathtakingly beautiful. And um, I remember the Christmas pageant one year before we graduated to elementary school. I was a shepherd and she was a wise man. 
And, uh, <laughs> and I remember just seeing this beautiful little girl with this crown on her head. And I was, I was wowed and wooed. And I knew that, you know, one of these days, if I can grow some, because I was always undersized, maybe she'll take a look at me. You know, Charlie, some would say that even today, you're the shepherd and she's the wise <laughs> that's, man. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Very, very true. So, so I'm, I'm curious. It sounds like a delightful childhood with a, you know rich social life and clearly great education. Did you ever bump into the, the, the cruelty, the oddity of segregation directly? We did. But even back then, because nothing bad happened to us most of the time, we look on it now as sort of, you know, the, the cherished part of growing up. For example, my mom and dad went to a Presbyterian church, Ladson Presbyterian Church, which was in downtown Columbia. And they had a Boy Scout troop. So for me to go to Boy Scout, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, I had to walk through white neighborhoods to get to my downtown church and my scout meetings. And I tell people, in fact, I used it as a campaign slogan when I ran for class president, when I got to the Naval Academy, at the beginning of plebe summer, there were seven blacks in my class of about 1,400. First, the first African-Americans at the academy, right? Well, we were, we were later on, but, okay. but there still weren't a lot. Yeah. And so I remember standing in front of my classmates with my campaign speech, and I said, you know, the last time I was in front of this many white guys, they were chasing me as I was trying to get home <laughs> from my scout meeting. And, and that got a laugh, and, and I got elected. So that was just sort of a part of life that, that we kind of expected. The good thing, if you can say it was good, the good thing about growing up in the South was that you knew where you could go legally and lawfully, and you knew where you were not supposed to go. So you knew that if you went to certain places, you could be in trouble. Uh, you might mm -hmm. go to jail, as, as we found out later with the sit-ins and the, you know, yeah. the lunch counter demonstrations, which gave us targets for places that we wanted to go, places that it was against the law for us to go, and we knew it was wrong that we couldn't go there because we were citizens just like anybody else. We didn't drink from the white drinking fountain, and you didn't go into the whites-only bathroom and stuff like that, but, but that was just the way of life, so it, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't very difficult. And besides, I spent my summers, most of my summers, particularly as I got into high school in New York City in Harlem. My, uh, my father had two sisters who lived on 135th Street. And I would go there at the end of the school year and stay most of the summer and just have a ball playing, uh, you know, stickball yeah. in the alleys in, in yeah. Harlem and out in the middle of the street and, and seeing the big city that was a little bit different. Harlem was segregated at the time, but you didn't have to go very far yeah. in New York City to see people who didn't look like you. So so it was sort of a melting pot. Was there still a vibrant African-American social life on oh, the yeah. Harlem scene then? Clubs yeah. and... Oh, it, it was incredible back then. All of the big name jazz artists and everybody, they were playing in, in the clubs and things like that. Wilt Chamberlain, who became one of the, yeah. you know, the first premier NBA basketball players, actually opened a club around the corner from my aunt's called Wilt's Smalls Paradise. <laughs> and it was Wilt Chamberlain's place. And so that's where everybody migrated or to Sylvia's for, you know, for breakfast, lunch or dinner, which was just an incredible restaurant where you got Southern cuisine right there in, in the Big Apple, in Harlem, in, in yeah. the Big Apple. And so that that was kind of the way growing up in the summertime. Um, wow. And, you know, our sports were se separated and everything, but we never really, although we always wanted to play the white schools or swim against the white teams, for many things like track and field, swimming, we didn't need to actually compete against them because every Saturday and Sunday morning when the sports results came out in the newspaper, you know, you could look at the South Carolina state championship and the Palmetto state championship and South Carolina always meant white. Palmetto mm. state meant black. So there was the Palmetto state honor society, the South Carolina state honor society, the ah. South Carolina state championships, the Palmetto state championships. So you could look at the results of all the competition. And we always knew that we were much better than the white swim team across town at Maxie Gregg park because our times were better or the track meets, yeah. our times were better. So we, we, we knew we could compete given the opportunity. And that's why I never, you know, for me, it never really bothered me as to whether or not I would be able to compete when I had an opportunity to go. And then my mom and dad, again, because they were both educators had really encouraged me to go away in the summertime, my last two years in high school 
to National Science Foundation summer institutes. And one of them I did out in a place called North Manchester, Indiana, at a school, a Church of the Brethren school called Manchester College. And I, I took chemistry for, for six weeks out there, and I was the only black in the, in the institute. Uh, and I loved it because it was, you know, new to me, but it, it also gave me an opportunity to see a lot of white kids and to find out that uh, when we started talking about stuff or going and doing the experiments, I was just as good as they were. And then my final summer before graduation, uh, I went to Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon, in a summer computer program that uh, the National Science Foundation sponsored. And again, I was the only black in the, in the institute. But again, it, it didn't really matter because I, I was very much at home. I had met some folk who were at the University of Pittsburgh, who, um, who black family, not black folk from, from Columbia, and they knew my family and they found out I was in town. So they would come pick me up on the weekends and, and nice. you know, make sure that I had, I was taken care of and everything. So uh, life was good. Can't complain. And your, your fellow students at those camps, they were cool with, I mean, you were different, but they were. They, they were indeed. Most of them, very few of them came from the South. Ah. So most of them had at least been exposed to black students before. So this was not their first time to the rodeo. Just yours. <laughs> yeah, just mine. But, uh, but they, they, all of them reached out to me and, and a lot of, several of them, you know, we still, every once in a while, we'll get in touch if, if we can find out where we are. And that's from back in the 1960s. Yeah. Well, you're, you're pretty easy to find. When and how did the idea of going to the Naval Academy come into play? That came into play at the age of 12 in seventh grade. Really? Yeah, I was watching back back in those days, the military was not frowned upon. You know, we were this is got pre-Vietnam War. We were the sons and daughters of baby boomers, pre-Vietnam. Everybody still really appreciated the veterans from World War II, my dad and my uncles and everything. And there were lots of television programs about military life or things that had to do with the military. So there was the long gray line about West Point. I remember that. Men of, men of Annapolis about life at the Naval Academy, Navy log about submarines, though the silent service was about submarines. Right. And I watched all of them. And uh, but I was blown away by Men of Annapolis. And it it showed every week, uh, you know, some segment of life on the Naval Academy yard. And uh, I fell in love with the uniforms. And also being a young man, uh, you know, having reached puberty and having gained some interest in girls, one of the things that really attracted me to the Naval Academy was all the beautiful girls from all over the Northeast. <laughs> Flocking to the school, gate. <laughs> from schools like Goucher and, you know, all the ladies' colleges that flocked to the Naval Academy on the weekends. For you may be aware of this, but, but, but our, the big deal there on Sunday afternoons was the tea fight. And the tea oh, fight. Oh, no. I didn't know oh, about yeah. that. The tea fight, that was the, the way that Mrs. Marshall, the social director, introduced us to, to the proper life. So, you know, we had classes during the week to learn how to set the table and, and to learn the B&D about which side was bread and which right. side was drink. And, and then we had classes to teach us how to waltz and do all these other kinds of stuff. And on Saturdays, they brought all these young ladies in. And we went into a place called Dahlgren Hall that was the armory at the Naval Academy. And uh, so this, you go into this armory that's lined with M M14 rifles. <laughs> and, pre and pretty girls. <laughs> and pretty girls and a, big, and a big drape, like a curtain, down the middle of the floor, right out to where the dance floor began. And the curtain was there because the girls came in on one side and the midshipmen came in on the other side. And when the curtain ended, you look to your left or right, respectively, and that was your date or your ah. partner for the for the dance. That so I'm not sure whether that's why they called it the tea fight, because with only four of us in my class, who actually six blacks when we started plebe year, but every time we went to a tea fight, we always dispatched one person to the balcony who could be our scout. scout. <laughs> and he would he would be flashing numbers. If there was a black girl in the group, which there very rarely were, uh, he would give us numbers about how many to move back to have any <laughs> chance whatsoever to, to, to be paired with, an, with a young black woman. Or if not, he would give numbers of, of a girl that he thought, you know, you might really like because she's either your height or uh, she's yeah. this or that or whatever. You're saying fight, not flight, right? Fight, fight, fight. What, what were you fighting over? 
I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea where the, name, where the name came from. But I know in our group, we were kind of fighting to make sure that we got a good person to escort through the next two or three hours or however long it lasted. That's hilarious. But, that, but anyway, I, I got interested in the Naval Academy, seeing that kind of stuff on men of Annapolis. And from that day forward, I would write my congressman and my senate, my two uh, U.S. senators and the vice president of the United States, whoever it happened to be. But going into high school, it was Lyndon Johnson was the vice president with, with, with President Kennedy and Strom Thurmond, Olin D. Johnston were my two uh, U.S. senators. And a gentleman by the name of Albert Watson was my congressional representative. So the, any of those gentlemen could nominate. I mean, you need That's a nomination correct. to be considered by the Academy. Absolutely. And any of those could nominate you. That Those were the ones from whom I was eligible for an appointment. I was not eligible for a presidential appointment because my dad was no longer active duty and he was not a Medal of Honor winner. So the president actually doesn't have the power that the vice president has when it comes to nominating or, ah. or appointing people to the service academy. So the, the, the vice president can appoint or nominate anybody from across the country. I was really counting on Vice President Lyndon Johnson because Strom Thurmond, Olin D. Johnston, and Albert Watson had made it very clear you know, going into my junior year, there was no way in the world they were going to appoint me to the academy. Didn't dare risk appointing a black boy? A black, exactly. Right. So anyway, my senior year, November 22nd, we were on our way down to Charleston, South Carolina, our football team, to play Burke High School of Charleston for the Palmetto State, the South Carolina State Black Football Championship. And we got word on the bus that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And um, Ooh. Yeah. And that struck me as the death knell for my my chances to go to the Naval Academy. And so I was I was devastated not only by the loss of the president, but by what I viewed then as a loss of any opportunity to go to the Naval Academy. And my my mom, as she always did, kind of came in and picked me up and she said, you're going to just give up. You know, you're going to quit. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm I don't know. Are you just going to quit? You're going to give up. And I thought about it for a while and I said, you know, I'm going to write a letter to the president. And I did. And I picked up pen and paper and I wrote a letter to President Johnson and explained that I had been writing to him for a number of years. And this was me again, the same guy that said, I want you to know who I am and I really need help. I know I'm not eligible for a presidential appointment, but I need help. Never heard from him, but I got a visit within weeks from a Navy recruiter. Oh. And then uh, several more weeks, President Johnson sent a retired federal judge Bennett from Washington, D.C., around the country looking for qualified black and Hispanic young men to come to the, to the service academies. And, and I ended up getting an appointment from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois, mm. and uh, another classmate, Wilson Rory, whose father was actually a colonel in the army. Wilson ended up getting an appointment to West Point, but he, you know, his, I think, actually came from President Johnson because his dad was an active duty yeah. army. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tell me some about your life at the Naval Academy. You, you've told me a couple of stories over the years, but you know some of the highs and lows. And if you if you look back on it now, besides the academic preparation, yeah, what key elements of the the leadership foundation that you've built on since do you think were really forged in those academy years? I, I think second only to my my kitchen table, where my mom and dad taught me ethics and leadership and and how to care for people. The Naval Academy probably comes next, and it's because of the example, the leadership examples I had there. One person in particular, Major John Riley Love, was my first company officer, the, the commissioned officer who was responsible for a group of us, about 150 midshipmen from all four classes. And uh, there were 36 companies in the brigade of midshipmen, the 4,000-member brigade. And Major Love was like my din daddy. He was my he was a Vietnam veteran, very tough. I mean, unbelievably tough, but like my dad, eminently fair. You know, my dad had been my high school football coach. And, he was um, white? He was white. Yep. Major Love was white. There were no black, there were no black commissioned officers oh. at the Naval Academy in any category while I was there in those four years. So I got to ask you, Charlie, because I hear, and I'm sure you do a lot from other people, sort of the power of your example, which is, which is immense. And it's both your personal character and your achievements, but it often comes accompanied with the sentence, the thought basically that if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah, I did have the example of black midshipmen and, and two of them, well, all three, 
watching Men of Annapolis at age 12. Oh, no, no, surely. no, yeah. none whatsoever. And, and like I said, I fell in love with Annapolis for a very trivial, actually ridiculous yeah. reason. The girls and the uniforms. I I get that, but what I'm kind of trying to get at and and tease out a bit, you know, for folks listening is what it was inside of you that, or in your parentage, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That let that not matter because you know I never there I never had any female astronauts to watch. Exactly. And and it it didn't stop me dreaming and imagining a lot about what it would be like to be a part of that kind of adventure. And so tell me about your experience with that. Kathy, you have to remember, you and I are dreamers. And I would venture to say that of all the people who serve with us in the astronaut corps, the one characteristic we all had in common was that we were visionaries and dreamers and people who thought of how the world could be, not how it was, but how it could I'm not even sure we thought very often about how it should be. We just, I thought about how it could be. Uh, I didn't have any intention or any purpose in being a role model for anybody or setting the example for anybody. I just knew, you know, that I could somehow, if I applied myself, and this again was because that's what my mom and dad told me, that I could become a midshipman at the Naval Academy. It, 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 there was nobody who looked like me there, but my dad, his, his mantra as a football coach was, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. So size never made any difference to me, as you know. Yeah. My wife says I suffered the small man syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think once I, once I got there, then I started looking for, it, for examples of leadership. Since I knew that's what the Naval Academy's mission was, was develop midshipmen morally, morally, mentally, and physically to lead Marines and sailors of the U.S. Naval Service. And so that's what I sought out to do. And, and Major, I was just fortunate that Major Love was my first company officer. And he was only there that year. That was his third and final year at the Academy as a company officer. He was an infantry officer. The, two, the, the irony is, there were two things I was definitely not going to do when I went to the Naval Academy. Under no circumstances <laughs> was I going to become a Marine. I thought Marines were absolutely crazy. I lived, uh, you know, we were we were dead in the middle of the state in Columbia, the capital yeah. city, but we were not far enough to be safe from Marines coming out of rec- out of recruit, you know, basic training down in in Paris, Paris Island. Island. Yeah, graduation weekend. It didn't take them any time to get up to Columbia <laughs> and wreak havoc. And if you think spring break is wild these days, oh, exactly, Marine Corps exactly. recruits right after they become Marines, exactly. you see nothing. <laughs> so, so I did not want to have anything to do with the Marine Corps. And the second thing was I was not going to fly airplanes under any circumstances. I Why that? Was, I thought it was inherently dangerous. And uh, I had flown in an airplane, uh, you know, other than a commercial airplane, I'd flown in a, in a, you know, a light civil airplane once when I was eight years old with a man, a one of my classmates' father, Mr. Ernest Henderson, who had been a Tuskegee Airman. And uh, I didn't know a lot about the Tuskegee Airman at the time, so I didn't appreciate it. But I also didn't appreciate the flight because we, you know, he took us up and we flew around uh, what was called Columbia Municipal Airport at the time. It was the predecessor to Columbia Airport. And I was totally unimpressed at the age of eight. <laughs> so I, you know, I said, thank you, Mr. Henderson. And I went away and I thought I'd never ever be in an airplane again. <laughs> I've, not, I've noticed something as you speak that you told me a little bit about once and I, when I ask you to comment on it a bit, the consistency unwavering with which you refer to all the adults that were around you as Mr. This or Mrs. That. Oh, yes. Oh, but yes. That was another quirk that struck me of your young life in the South that so inside the black community, I suppose people were Mr. or Mrs. or first naming, polite, but also, you know, friendly. Yeah. But, you know, I think I didn't quite appreciate till maybe the recent movie Hidden Figures. Yeah. That white folk would never call a black man Mr. or a black woman Mrs. No, they they would, they the favorite, you know, for a professional person, the favorite term was professor. So you could be a reverend or a professor. You could be a reverend or, or a professor. Or just what, your last not, name? No, your first name. Your first name. Wouldn't even grace you with your last name. Anything but to call you Mr. Uh-huh. And, uh, which acknowledged that you were a human being. 
you had some standing professor right you know i don't i don't know why they picked that but yeah but you know, i can my father was every every once in a while called called professor but but yeah, frequently was charles and yeah. uh, so i got used to it but we were we were taught sometimes at great pain <laughs> you addressed any adult as mr or miss or mrs and you were very respectful in your conversation yeah, to them, and, yeah. and you respected them so back to the academy i think many people many young men and women perhaps like you fall in love with the uniform and the aura and the mystique it's actually not it's not only not an easy place to get in it's an exceedingly tough first year deliberately so for lots of reasons but how hard did you find that first year in adjusting? We have changed quite a bit through the years. We, we now do not try to run people out the way we did when I was there. We, you know, it, it was the purpose of upperclassmen to get rid of plebes, to get rid of freshmen. Really? Weed you out? Weed you out. They, they only wanted the, the highly desirable. And so. So was that actually the highly desirable or was it just see if you could crush people and if, if they crushed you, they were too weak? It depended on it depended on who the person was. We, you know, I in my company of about 150 midshipmen, some of the some of the upperclassmen were just nasty. They were just they didn't like anybody. And so the people that they tried to weed out were people that they considered to be weak. Sometimes they were not like them. I remember, although I was the only black in my company and my class there, I was not the, the person that took the took the most abuse. I had a classmate by the name of Alex Lay, who was Chinese uh, or oh. Chinese American. And, and there were a number of the upperclassmen and even some of my own classmates who were plebes of these upperclassmen, you know, in order to, to look good for their upperclassmen, just verbally and physically abused Alec that whole year. And, and even after spring break, when we came back, and that was generally, you know, the, 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 although that was not the formal end of plebe year, when you came back from spring break, everything really lightened up and people stopped coming around, which was the, the formal go to, to an upperclassman's room before meals and, and spout out things verbatim and go do things they wanted you to do. Get it wire another, brushed. It was another <laughs> form of abuse. Yeah. But almost everybody in the company stopped doing come arounds except Alex. Alex did come arounds right up until graduation day. And they were, they, oh, were wow. abusive. they were abusive in every respect. And it was because he was Chinese American and you know, the, the name calling and everything else. And so um, that, that kept some heat off me. I felt really bad about it because there was nothing I could do, at least yeah. nothing I thought I could do, but he became a very good friend of mine and went on to graduate. And I've, I've actually lost contact with him, but my guess is, he became a superb officer in the in the U.S. Navy. Yeah. So Major Love was clearly one of the high points of your time with the Academy. He was the high point for me, as it turned out, because, like I said, we separated at the end of my plebe year. One of the things that made him a high point was my second year company officer was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Van Meter, who was a guy that looked like a little rat. He was a nuclear power officer. And, uh, and he was short in stature and acted like it. I mean, everything about him was immature. He had no, no good leadership qualities that I ever found. And he really enjoyed what was called frying the midshipmen. The, when, you, yeah. when you violated a rule, you got written up so that it ended up in restriction or worse. And uh, he, like many of the Navy officers there, prided themselves in writing midshipmen up, you know, and and getting them lots of demerits. That was that was another way to get people out. And uh, so he exhibited zero leadership characteristics that I wanted to emulate later in life. The good thing was he left after that. Well, no, he didn't leave. What happened was at the end of my sophomore year, the Naval Academy switched uh, my class. So we went to the to the other regiment. The Naval Academy was the brigade was divided into two regiments, two regiments. first and second regiment. I started in 29th Company, 2nd Regiment, and then we got moved over to 11th Company, 1st Regiment. 11th Company had a reputation of its own. It was, it was uniquely mean. My class came in. Most of us didn't fit with that image. And so we spent the next two years trying to clean up 11th Company's attitude and reputation. And so 
we weren't overly endearing to, to plebes, but we tried to give them a pretty tough plebe year, but do it in a civil manner. And so we got rid of a lot of the things around the company area that talked about the 11th Company Tigers. We graduated as 11th Company Tigers, but, but the Tigers of 11th Company in the class of 1968, our predecessors would probably figure out that we had lost all of that. They, they were pussycats compared yeah, to the exactly, other guys. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, I, my last two years, my company officer was a, was a, a lieutenant commander, Lou Thames, or Thames, I guess, a T-H-A-M-E-S. He was a conventional destroyer man. And uh, he was what I envisioned. What's that mean? Well, it meant he was not a nuclear power guy. You know, everybody in the Navy in the 1960s was not a nuclear power qualified person like today. Today, every ship in the Navy is a nuclear power ship. So you've got to go to nuclear yeah. power school and everything. Lou Thames was a, was a conventional destroyer man, but also an incredible leader. And as a matter of fact, I enjoyed being in his company and then becoming a leader for him because I was company commander, one of the sets of my, well, two sets of my senior year. So I, you know, I worked hand in glove with him to try to help develop the rest of the company. And he was somebody I greatly respected. I wanted to emulate, not quite up on the step as John Riley Love, but he was in the Navy. And so I always envisioned that I was probably going to spend my career for my, my five-year career you know, on a ship. <laughs> and I figured, you know, shucks, I want to be like, like Lieutenant Commander Tim. Thing. So let's see, you end, kind of ended up with getting the Marine Corps part wrong, and then the aviation part wrong, and then five turned into more like 35 or something. What flipped the switch on going Marine? Because you had, you had the option if you yeah. complete your studies at the Academy, you can, frankly, you can opt for Navy or Marine Corps from Annapolis. You could even opt for a commission in the Army or the Air Force. If you exactly. To. What turned you around? The switch flipper for me was plebe year. You know, I was sitting there, we were approaching, back then it was called service selection because it really was selection. There was none of what is today at the, at the service academies, at least at the Naval Academy, you really have to qualify to be considered by a service option. So people who want to go in the Marine Corps have to go to, they go to Leatherneck, which is essentially uh -huh. six weeks of basic training in Quantico, one in summer before you become a first-class midshipman. If you haven't been to Leatherneck, the chances of the Marine Corps allowing you to come in are pretty slim. Uh -huh. People who want to be SEALs go to Junior Buds or something. They go to be seen and to be yeah. graded you will. And pick up some of the skills. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had been to down to Little Creek, Virginia and worn a Marine Corps utilities and stuff. For and for those who years. don't know, Little Creek, Virginia is the home of the Navy Special Forces. Exactly. But I had been there. So I, again, I got a peep at the Marine Corps. And I, while I was, I was like a fish out of water because I didn't know how to put on my, my equipment. I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps. But I had a good time crawling around in the mud and doing all that other kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, so service selection night was coming up. And on that night, in order of class standing, you know, you walk down to a place called Smoke Hall that that is one of the community, like a community center on a on a regular college campus. And you walk in and there are all these tables that represented each warfare specialty. And you walk over to the one you want. And you sign on the dotted line. You, so you, know, you could walk over to submarines or surface anywhere. ships or special warfare or Marines, right? Yeah, the only thing you couldn't walk over to was nuclear power. Admiral Rickover ran nuclear power and nuclear power he picked. So mm. everybody in the class who went to nuclear power was pre-picked by Admiral Rickover. And they already had a, so they walked over to the desk just to get their check. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you were picked by Admiral Rickover for nuclear power, you got a signing bonus. Uh, that was the way that nuclear power worked back then because, you know, it was new. Yeah. And they were really draw people in. People in. Yeah. Yeah. So before I even went down, I said, you know, I can sail a ship and I'd love it because I, I love being at sea. I had spent my, my summer before senior year on a Korean War destroyer, USS uh, McCaffrey DD-860 out of Sasebo, Japan. We were on the gun line in Vietnam. So I got to watch us fire five inch guns and all that kind of stuff. And, and it, it just, I said, you know, I could do this for five years, but I, before I left my room to go down, I said, but you know, I want to be like major love. I love people. 
And so I think I'm going to go Marine Corps. And I walked down. I told my, I had told my family, I had given them a heads up and, <laughs> and every, everybody cried. My dad cried. My dad cried like a baby. So I kind of let them know that I was leaning that way. I hadn't decided, but I was leaning toward the Marine Corps. So everybody- Over the, ha the hazardous duty of Marines, basically. Yeah, everybody had had their opportunity to try to talk me out of it. And so I went down and I walked right to the Marine Corps desk and I signed on the dotted line and, and I got assigned to go to basic class 1-69, which was the first class of fiscal year 1969 yeah. because fiscal year started in July back then. And so I was in Alpha Company and I was happy as I could be. And I went through, I loved the basic school. Everything we did was a lot of fun, except the last exercise was a three-day war in November. And it was mm. typical Washington, unexpected freezing. Now, wait, Washington where? Where, where was Washington, D.C., because we were at Quantico, Virginia, just uh, south okay. of Snow on the ground, cold, everything was frozen. Everything you didn't have in South Carolina. Everything I didn't have and everything <laughs> I had not experienced even at the Naval Academy. So all my crawling around in the mud at Little Creek, Virginia, you know, that summer that had enticed me to go in the Marine Corps, that was gone. The ground was now frozen. <laughs> they never tell you the whole story when yeah, they're setting the base. There was, there was no mud. This was all ice and snow. And I really, I had this, I, I hated cold. And I had this fear that if I lay down at night, I'd die of hypothermia. So I volunteered for all the fire watches. And so for 72 hours, for three straight days, I did nothing but march and do fire watch because wow. I, I knew if I went to sleep, I'd die. I had an aviation option out of the Naval Academy, but I had gone in just before the three-day exercise to talk to my, my company officer, a Major McElroy from Alabama, and he had a real Southern drawl. And I walked in and um, he knew that I was an aviator. And so I walked in and I said, Major McElroy, I want to I wanna give up my aviation option. And he kind of looked up and looked at me and he pulled open his bottom drawer. And in the bottom drawer, he had one of these, what they call a five, I forget what, but it was a big old coffee can. And that was his spittoon because he, he chewed tobacco. Huh. And he pulled it open and he went, he spit out a wad into his spittoon. I could hear it splash and I kind of went, ooh. He looked at me and he said, Bolden, I think you lost your mind. <laughs> He said, you got hundreds of classmates who would give their IT to go to flight school and you want to be an infantry officer? And I said, yes, sir, Major McElroy, I do. He said, well, I think that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but if you want to do it, you can do it. So he said, come on back in and talk to me after the three-day walk. So we went out for the three-day war and he was absolutely right. <laughs> I went through that and I, the next day I beat a path in the Major McElroy's office. And I take it all back, sir. He looked, he looked <laughs> up at me and smiled. He said, Bolden, what you want? I said, well, Major <laughs> McElroy, I'm here to tell you, I want to keep my aviation option. He said, I'm glad to hear that. That's a very <laughs> smart move. And he dismissed me and I went off and, and got my, my assignment to go to flight school. And I I had done well enough at the basic school. Everything in the Marine Corps is based on performance and everything. So I was in the top of my class. So I got my first choice of, uh, of flight school or whatever else. And I chose to go to, you know, down to Pensacola and get started. And, and that's how I got into aviation. Fell cool. in love. Although I said I, I, I thought flying was inherently dangerous. My first time I got in an airplane in, in Pensacola, I, I felt us lift off and I just, I went, holy jeez. Uh, I don't know how I missed this before, but this is, this is really cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was off to the races. Yeah, you were. And combat missions in Vietnam. I want to fast forward a little bit and touch somewhat, but kind of briefly on your very long tenure in four flights in the astronaut corps. And I'm interested for your, in particular, for your, some thoughts on having grown up at the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps what were your perceptions of, of culture and leadership when you arrived in the astronaut corps? Yeah. And then I want to be sure we move on and talk a bit about your time as the head of NASA, because you were, you were at the helm of NASA during times of very significant change. 
you know, Kathy, you, I think you can appreciate this. And, you know, I'm not going to call any names because I, I don't want to. But I, in one respect, I was somewhat disappointed with the leadership in the astronaut office. How so? There were, there were historic figures who were there, but everybody who led the astronaut office was a military person. And so having come from, by then, I think I had 12 years in the Marine Corps. And while I didn't have high expectations for naval officers, I had come to believe that they were all really good leaders and everything, and they took care of their people. And um, I found the personnel skills and the, the leadership skills of people in the astronaut office and other places were lacking somewhat considering the challenge that they had with integrating you and your classmates, trying to make it a place that was openly welcoming to, you know, to females and, and people of color. And I think we were tolerated more than, than welcomed with open arms. You came two years after me, so you were still three years. Two years after you, so I can't imagine what it was like when you got there. Yeah, so my class had the, the first six women and the first three African-Americans, the first Asian-American. Exactly. Your class, class of 80, right? But you arrived in 81. Yeah. And you were the only African-American in that class, right? Yep. And yep. two women, so it was still very new for there to it be still very strange new. people like us. Yeah. And, you know, the military leadership had to deal with a lot of civilians in the office. And I think it, it was actually trying to figure out how do we how do we get these Apollo era astronauts to come into the 20th century and get away from believing that only men, you know, can do this work. And, and I saw the work that you and Sally and and Ray and others did in working your way in and, and earning people's respect. And I was really impressed. You know, we had folk like Rick Houck and, and Dan Brandenstein out of your class who rose to leadership positions pretty quick. And Mike Smith in my class, you know, so over time in the first few years, the leadership transitions that took place, particularly after we started flying shuttle and the old guard really didn't have time to to be the leaders anymore. They were the still the role models and everything. There were a couple of exceptions. One would be Jack Lausma, who happened to be a Marine, who was exceptional in his leadership. And then our den dad was Alan Bean. Alan Bean was a moonwalker. And Alan Bean was assigned to usher traips around the country with our class. And he, he was our den mother too. He was our, he was our den dad. Alan was exceptional. The guy was so compassionate he had found that he, you know, in his life, he loved art and he had become a relatively successful artist, not nearly as successful as he was going to be when he finally left the astronaut office. But, um, you know, he had been through difficult times in the astronaut office and everything. And he always emphasized to us the critical importance of family and making sure you take care of your families because that's what's going to get you through this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and he was always available and everything. So he was, he was sort of like a, a major love, to be quite honest to me. Alan was not a pushover and he, he wasn't, but, but he was so genuine and uh, again, like my dad. And so my male role models generally tended to be people who were sort of like my dad. Say a little more about not by individual, but so, so what's the contrast? What was lacking or, or what, what was the opposite of the Alan Bean and Jack Lausman like? What style of leadership was that? I think the big difference was some of the legendary leaders were people that really didn't have time to focus on individuals in the office. They, um, in one way, you know, they said, hey, you're grown men and women and you don't, you don't need a lot of care and feeding. So I'm going to let you do what you want to do up to a certain extent, as long as you agree with me. There was that caveat. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and that was not something to which I was accustomed, even in the Marine Corps. I had leaders in the Marine Corps who would say, you know, you're on your own. Uh, you're big men and women and, and you can do whatever you want to do and, and tell me what what's on your mind and I'll think about it. But not not just shut you out or shut you down because you disagreed with with, you know, a direction that, that people wanted to go or an opinion people had. And, and I found that early on. And it, again, it generally tended to be among the more experienced astronauts who had who had flown before and had been through a another system and, and were really, 
I didn't think attuned to where aviation was heading and not, in my mind, again, understanding that, you know, space and aerospace is just an extension of aviation. And I remember having a debate with one of the leaders in the astronaut office when we were trying to, you may remember this, because we were trying to transition the shuttle to the glass cockpit. Mm -hmm. Which means we had old style what we call round knobs and dials and And we were going to switch to looking more like a modern day business jet or airliner. Exactly. And your, your classmate, Jill Creighton was in charge of going around and looking at all the airlines and looking at all the, the new companies and coming in with prototypes and giving us an opportunity to look at it and say how we would like to see it. But we had certain people in the astronaut office and leadership positions that said, we're not changing anything until we can change all the shuttles so that they're all the same. Simultaneously. You know, yes, yeah, simultaneously, which that was a non-starter. Everybody, never gonna happen. We, we were never, it was never gonna happen. And I remember the one time I ever had an argument with a senior leader in the office who happened to be the chief at the time. You know, I went, I said, you know, you and I both came from the same place. We came from Patuxent River. And I know you're sufficiently older than I am. You never knew what the cockpit was gonna look like when you signed for your airplane and maintenance control and went out and jumped in the airplane but you had been trained to take a look around, figure out what was in a different location and everything else. And we were going out to do critical tests where we really, yeah. ideally- you Yeah, not to, just straight and level. Yeah, yeah, you wanted to instinctively know where something was, but we couldn't, we couldn't afford that luxury. And so if I could do it in test pilot school and test and as a test pilot, I can certainly do it here because I'm gonna fly this configuration in the simulator for thousands of hours before I ever get in a spacecraft to go to space. I, I think this is really holding us back for no reason, to be quite honest. And and yeah, I was thanked very much and and told to go to my room. Yeah. <laughs> I remember some conversations like that. <laughs> but gradually people came around and we were able to transition the shuttle to, you know, a glass cockpit and the like. And and when I go back now and look at what's in SpaceX Dragon and other spacecraft, I'm just blown away. Yeah. Put screen and all this kind of stuff. And 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 it just came and we adjusted and we yeah. trained ourselves. Coming up in the second part of this conversation, you'll get Charlie's perspective on NASA's transition from space shuttle operations to commercial spaceflight, on the real inside workings of Washington, DC, and what the future holds for space commerce and exploration. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.